0: Hello, I'm Jackie Mignot.
1: And I'm Zach Robichaux.
0: You're listening to a podcast made flesh.
1: Conversations about an embodied faith.
0: We're coming to you from Treaty 7 territory, talking with all sorts of people about the Incarnation.
1: We're not reporters or experts, but we are questioners, and we are on a quest to have a conversation about the central Christian belief that God became flesh.
2: the existential tension in Kierkegaard comes actually from the fact that it has to be expressed.
1: Mm. And if it's not expressed then right the then point?
2: there would be no tension, right? right? Then there would be no existential tension. Right. Whereas the existential tension in in the French existentialists it comes from the fact that you have to create your own meaning, your own you have to create your own truths. Mm. You have to create your own path in life.
1: Welcome to the episode. Today we're talking to Dr. Glenn Graham. He's a professor of theology and philosophy at Berman University in Lacombe, Alberta. Uh, I've known Glenn for quite a while, and I asked to speak with him uh, about Søren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher, often called the father of existentialism, and uh, we thought we'd find out what that had to do with the Incarnation.
0: Mm -hmm. We live in a culture that's inherited this belief or worldview that we're probably not even actively aware of, but that kind of assumes that the individual is is the locus of of meaning and it's the individual that is the most free and responsible agent to to i i don't know act in the world and and so we kind of wanted to go back to well where did this start? How does this impact our faith um we're kind of seeing the limits of individualism in our culture, especially in a pandemic. And we just wanted to explore this topic deeply with an expert, someone who spent time looking at the philosophy and the worldviews and how things shaped, um, how things have been shaped so that we are in this position now.
1: What I appreciated about Glenn's uh, expertise here is he's able to root us in the tension and the mystery that mm. Kierkegaard really doesn't... Uh, let go of and doesn't try to explain away so yeah enjoy the talk um and remember to engage with us on social media and let us know what you think any questions you have
2: well kierkegaard is is sometimes called the father of existential existentialism um but I actually think his his philosophy and theology is is very different mm. from the kind of twentieth century existentialism that that you might be familiar with um, he was uh, kierkegaard was a nineteenth century early nineteenth century uh, thinker from Denmark uh, who wrote in Danish and then has been translated uh, later into other languages um, but he was um he believed in God uh the French existentialists, like mm. Sartre and Camus and so forth um were atheists right. um kierkegaard believed in eternal truth mm. uh the french ex- existentialists believe that life is meaningless and that we create our own meaning mm. and so so there's some there's some very some some deep, um, it's it's his brand of existentialism is very different from the from the what, French existentialism.
1: How did did the French build off of his?
2: Yeah, they were influenced. Yeah, mm. they were okay. influenced by him. But
1: what, what were what were the commonalities? Well,
2: while, while Kierkegaard believed in God and mm-hmm. eternal truth. He did believe that we experience those truths in time and space. Mm so there's a so he emphasized that paradox a lot and and so right. that paradoxical nature of life that we both have what he called an eternal a consciousness of the of the eternal mm. and, and that we had to live out that our faith in time and space um experientially uh, that tension between those two realities that's that's what he explored a lot in his philosophy
0: hmm.
1: okay so the tension of being connected to e- eternity or the eternal yeah but having to live in these moments and in these yeah so time and space the space referring more to our bodies or yeah the physical i, I world? think so yeah okay
2: yeah
1: i guess and now to tie it i mean this seems early, but maybe maybe this is what we're going to be talking about anyway. So that um, how did his theology, because reading a little bit, you know, in the last few days, I'm like, oh, man, this is, he's a scary guy in a sense <laughs> you know, about hell and like his, his views, he, very conservative. And um,
2: what were you reading?
1: Oh, uh, just, just a, just a brief, um, synopsis jackie had sent me a link uh where maybe was it, it wasn't good <laughs> well maybe uh i was from uh which university um duke or something stanford i don't know stanford, about that that's yeah
2: I-, I don't know about his health fire and brimstone sermons i must have missed those well
1: no th- it wasn't it wasn't that but he seemed pretty affected by the um the urgency of faith mm. yeah. and um I guess maybe that's not a scary thing, but yeah, he's like, if you believe this, then you better i mean you better get a move on
2: right right yeah yeah no I, I, I he um he did argue that if you take christianity seriously it it does lead to some some pretty extreme positions and mm-hmm he argued that Christians in his day did not take their Christianity seriously. They weren't, they were just nominal Christians. Uh, most, most people. And so in part, because people were born into the state church, so they were just, they were born Lutherans. Right. And, and so he said, well, if, if Christianity is actually, actually to be taken seriously, it would lead to some, some pretty radical, you know, uh, life uh, it, would, it would lead to a radical lifestyle so he, he thought christianity was christianity was radical
1: he sounds he sounds a little bit like an anabaptist in that sense then because they were the ones who were like well you should be taking your faith seriously you mm-hmm. know so infant baptism you know enough of yeah. like that let's let's actually make a conscious decision
2: yeah
1: um so yeah he probably if if he was in the right space and time he might have been one of those early anabaptist radicals yeah. but What was the connection? I mean, is there a connection for his? um, I mean, did he have anything to say specifically on the incarnation as this? I mean, as the kind of impetus or the the joining of eternal with the physical world?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I was thinking about this uh, how how to get at this in relation to Kierkegaard, and I think that one way to to get at it would be to um, I was I was reading uh, in Matthew chapter 5 and 6 the Sermon on the Mount mm-hmm. and in Matthew chapter 5 uh, Jesus says that we should um, show our light before all people mm. um, don't keep your light hidden uh, let it shine before all people so that they may give glory to God and then in Matthew chapter six, uh, he says, uh, oh, and so that they may see your good deeds. In chapter five, he, so he says, show your light so that they may see your good deeds. Hmm. People may see your good deeds. And then in chapter six, he says, don't show your good deeds. Hide your good deeds. Keep your faith. Keep, pray in secret. Hmm. Do your good deeds in secret and in private. It's a purely spiritual, secretive thing between you and God. That's Matthew chapter 6. Hmm. So there's a very interesting contradiction there between uh, f- chapter 5 and chapter 6 that we could perhaps explore.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, yeah. And I think we see that same kind of contradiction in Kierkegaard. And that's the contradiction that that he explores a lot.
1: So what is this? what is the tension then?
2: Between uh, between the, the the spiritual and the physical, uh, the the internal and the expressive, um, mm. the the secretive and the public. Mm. And if you read if you read one of the if you read Matthew chapter five, you'll get one impression. If you meet, read Matthew chapter six, you'll get a completely different impression. Which is right. a good, yeah. uh, just another argument against for not for y- using proof texts in your theology. <laughs> right. Taking things out of context. Hallelujah! Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, that, yes. Go ahead. Par-
0: well, paradox was a big thing for
2: Kierkegaard. Yes. Exactly. Right. So, yeah. can you
0: talk more about like that and how he saw that and what? So,
2: so he said that we live in that tension, mm. in that that paradoxical tension in. in in particular, you know, to that, those contradictions I was just talking about. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And, and because we're, we're, we're human beings and we're not angels uh, or spirits, uh, we live in, we live with that tension. Right. We, we can't just wish it away. Right. We can't just ignore it um it's it's part of who what we was are here to
1: then recommendation in how we live in that tension
2: um you, did he lean yeah
1: i mean he, he he wants us to be caught in this tension but did he lean more towards well let's lean into this physical nature and god has god has viewed holiness or like did he view the physical world as holy
2: um I believe so. That's what I would argue. Most, most traditionally, although this is this has been changing in the in the last few years. Uh, traditionally, people re- read Kierkegaard as putting a lot more emphasis on on our spiritual nature mm. rather than our physical. Um, but that's I th- I believe uh, a misreading of Kierkegaard. It's too simplistic. Mm in what he's concerned with i believe rather is that tension between between the two right. and so in one place again if you read him out of context in one place he may be emphasizing you know one side of that paradox over the other hmm. but but you have to read him as a as a whole uh one very excellent example uh is is probably in his most famous book a, a fear and trembling where he talks about taking a leap of faith
0: hmm.
2: and so yeah. people have have read him as a fideist which is a and the idea that you you um you emphasize faith over reason hmm.
1: um,
2: what's that word fideist f- fideist yeah f-i-d-e-i-s-t oh. fideist okay um they they read him as in in fear and trembling and and in other books advocating that we should take a, a kind of an, an, ira- an irrational leap of faith. Hmm. So, to, to answer your question, Zach, he he w- according to that interpretation, he would uh, solve the problem, the paradox, by taking by through taking a leap of faith, an irrational leap of faith, um, okay. because. There is nothing, there is no evidence for God. There's nothing sacramental. There's not, There's nothing to point us, you know, lead us towards God. Because it's, God is spiritual and we live in a physical world.
0: Hmm.
2: But that's not, I believe, what, what Kierkegaard actually says in Fear and Trembling and, and in some of his other books.
0: What, what um, would you say he says? I mean, yeah.
2: Yeah, it, First of all, he's this is one of his uh, books where he's writing uh using a pseudonym. Hmm. So really sh- I, we shouldn't be talking about Kierkegaard in 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 relation to some of these uh books um we should you know u- using a s- s- pseudonym but just for the sake of the conversation I'll just say Kierkegaard. Right. Yeah. Um uh he he talks about this uh idea that I was discussing in, in in Matthew chapter five and six, where um, in relation to Abraham, the faith of Abraham, hmm. and he, you know, shows how Abraham was a man was a, was a man of faith, um, the preeminent man of faith, uh, and he was puts a lot of emphasis on the spiritual aspects of of Abraham's faith. Hmm. Um, And then he uh, shows the contradictions between uh, living as a man of faith in in a physical world in a in in time and space in a world where you're asked to sacrifice your 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 only son.
0: Mm -hmm. Right.
2: And so this is a kind of spirituality where you sacrifice. Um, everything temporal, all your pos- all your possessions, mm. um, in in the in the fire of the eternal. You know the the eternal that burns up everything temporal, everything right. that that you can uh, measure, everything that you can um, express outwardly and physically. But then, but that that movement, that movement of of, of uh, uh, that movement that's an, that that very spiritual, non physical movement, is not how he defines faith. Right. In in fear and trembling.
1: Well, and Abraham doesn't end up like God says. No, <laughs> actually, yes. we're not. So
2: yeah I, so and yeah. exactly that's what he said yeah for kierkegaard in fear and trembling faith is the opposite actually the opposite movement or the fulfillment of faith is actually the opposite movement when mm-hmm. Abraham has to take his son back
1: mm. and like the the walk back down the mountain yes
2: exact the walk back down and he says mm-hmm. how most people think it would be terrible for Abraham to sacrifice the son, but actually the most terrible thing was walking back down the mountain
1: because now he hasn't actually fulfilled what he believed was his purpose right,
2: and he was willing to sacrifice his own son, and now he has to take him back as a gift wow. that and that's what he defined that 's what Kierkegaard defines as faith hmm.
0: so that that sense of like taking the physical and and the the things you do have i'm trying to get my head around it and so you can tell me if i'm on the right track understanding this so he saw faith as as living with the physical in the temporal not just offering it all to this otherworldly plane and
2: exactly and specifically his son right yeah yeah but but at the very same time being willing to sacrifice his son and and so right. it's both at the same time and that's yeah. and that's the the paradox of of, of faith
1: I, i'm reading a book right now about uh about truth it's called love matters more by jared bias one of the co-hosts of this podcast uh, that are on my t-shirt um and his um the direction he takes this is like well truth is love the highest form of truth is love And I was, and uh, in thinking about our conversation today, I was thinking, well, isn't the truest expression of faith action? So that typically, you know, having grown up, you know, there's this all, there's this supposed tension between faith and works, but actually the truest expression of faith is a physical action or a physical act, um, an expression. Right. And, and I was thinking, well, that, that actually ties in, you know, with, you know, what is truth? What is faith? Well, it's, it has to be embodied for it to actually be um, an expression of this, of the eternal truth, as we know it, at least.
2: Yeah.
1: And so, yeah, can, how did Kierkegaard define faith then? Was it only in, like, did he, like, he, he likes paradox, but yeah. he... Does he ever come to this resolution of, like, well, actually, all you have to do is, well.
2: yeah. No, he never does that. <laughs> um, so he he uses a, a Socratic method. Yeah, uh, and in and it's in part why he uses synonyms uh, a, a lot. There, there, a lot, he has uh, lots of uh, disc, What what do you call it, discourses, which are right. they, they're sermon like writings where he used his own name and in a few other uh, writings but mostly he used pseudonyms in part because he didn't want to give answers he didn't want to seem authoritative he didn't want to tell people um how to live out their faith Hmm. and so uh what he does is often explore these paradoxes and then leave the reader to grapple with them on their own
1: Hmm. Hmm. not unbiblical
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean we see that yeah. in, in Jesus' what the example I just gave from Matthew chapter five and six, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting.
1: You know, we, we talked briefly earlier about the uh urgency. What what why was there a compulsion to be faithful to this God that he believed mm-hmm. in? Right. What was he drawn to?
2: He was inspired by um the gospels i believe uh, the he was inspired by jesus christ he um many of his writings um talk about the faith of of jesus christ how radical it was and how countercultural it was and how and and so i think his i think you know the the, the gospels the, the to jesus that is presented in the gospels inspired him mm-hmm. um, i wonder and, oh, sorry go against, ahead. against and of and, and so he was very very much against the institutionalization of religion he he saw something that's that was very you know um uniquely and radically spiritual in the figure of jesus mm-hmm. um and so he was both critical of the state church, uh, and and also very much inspired by what he considered to be original the, the origins of 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 the Christian faith.
0: Hmm. So,
2: so sorry, this... I interrupted you.
0: No, that's actually really uh, interesting because I'm I, so maybe this gets back to like where we started from, like so understanding the culture you live in and me when I'm, when I'm hearing you and I, the teensy bits about Kierkegaard's life that I know, and the culture he lives in is obviously a very like, well, we all do this and we all believe this and we, but there's no, um, so is that kind of where the idea of the individual comes up because he's sort of pushing back against the, um, the institutional church where you're, you just are in and you don't need to think about it. And, and also maybe, I don't know, mid 1800s i don't know danish history at all so i don't know if there's like like the king and imperial stuff going on and 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 class structures like all of that i'm wondering could you speak to like kind of that context he was in yeah Um, i mean
2: so so that's yeah there was a there was a state church Uh, um everyone was born into the state church Mm. there was a, a monarchy all the the same political issues that you were seeing in in other parts of europe were, were the, you know the, the the class differences that you mentioned? There were it was all there, and so Kierkegaard is often interpreted as saying, um, "You need to get rid of that kind of institutionalized Christianity, all visible. Just get rid of all those visible manifestations hmm. of Christianity. Well, like in
1: church churches. What do you yes, say? Like church it?
2: structure, right? Oof, and wow. and. And so he's often interpreted as saying Christianity is something inward and spiritual Hmm. and and secretive, a secret between you and God. And he does say that a lot. He does talk, emphasize those aspects of Christianity a lot, in in part in his polemics against the the state church. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But, But as I would argue, that's only one side of Kierkegaard. Hmm. That's only one, but it is an important side of his writings, hmm. and and you can see why. You know, when you when you have an institutionalized church, uh, when you have a ch- well, all churches are institutionalized to some extent, but when you have a state church where you're just born into the church and and hmm. your Christianity is just a matter of of habit, hmm. when when church when your religion is is a kind of politics. Right. Then you can see why he would put a lot of emphasis on the inwardness of Christianity—that this, the this, this those spiritual aspects that aren't visible, right. that I, that are not manifest physically. Right. Um. But that's again only one side. There is again that tension between that Matthew chapter five and chapter six tension mm. in in Kierkegaard's writings as well, and so and you he explores this explicitly in in books like works of love he wrote a um, a series hmm. of discourses under his own name actually hmm. uh, called works of love where he explores this this tension where he says yes uh, christianity is both spiritual but it it also has to bear fruit it's it right. is spiritual but it also has to bear fruit
0: and would he what would he say? Is the fruit? Is that something more love, communal? Love. Yeah, yeah, collective. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah.
2: Hmm.
1: And there needs to be an object, so it has to. it yes. has to be ex- external. Yeah,
2: yeah. And he says it Not is, it is subject, communal. Yeah. yeah, he says it is communal. Hmm.
1: Um, That's fascinating. Is, is he is he viewing um, the the personal as kind of like tapping into God or kind of receiving from God and then the bearing fruit kind of the you know allowing god's love to pass through
2: except except for him god is is god is incarnate too so it's not just that god if he says god he emphasizes the idea that god became human Uh, he he is he, he puts a lot of emphasis on the incarnation in his writings right um and so God is not just uh, spiritual and otherworldly. Was although there a he, way, that, although God that... is that too, yeah. but God yeah. is also incarnate. Hmm.
1: Was there something particularly not incarnational about the state church?
2: What what was well, not? What, he what was, was saying, the... It's it's a corruption of 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 the incarnate side of God.
1: How so? Like because it well, just... it's
2: it's it was too political, too okay. institutionalized, too rules based. Uh, it was not okay. based in in it was not you know loving or spiritual or or it was just purely public uh, visit really? uh, and political in the worst sense. Mm. Mm. Wow, this and is
1: yet a... it was able to produce
2: Kierkegaard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's. Yeah, it's his his kind of embodied faith would probably not in if you were to pin him. I actually, I don't know for sure what his if he actually felt that there was some kind of value to, to institutionalize Christianity at all. It, it could, oh, wow. At all. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, I don't actually know the answer to that question.
1: Yeah, OK, yeah. but he never. Yeah, he didn't explicitly yeah. say, but there's these other good things. Yeah. yeah,
2: I I would have to look into that. I, it's yeah. you know, it's the fact that it doesn't that it doesn't come to mind. <laughs> yeah, it says a lot. He doesn't yeah. put a lot of emphasis on that. But but that doesn't mean that he doesn't didn't think that you know, you should express our our Christianity um uh, visibly. Um, he says so explicitly. Mm. It's just that he was very skeptical of of institutionalized Christianity.
0: I love just the embrace of the tension and the paradox of all of this, because I think that sometimes what we're trying to get at in this podcast and also trying to understand what's going on um, culturally and in the church where we're like, because I can see the same patterns. I can see people who grew up um, maybe in more of a institutionalized church leaving for a very spiritual inner me and Jesus church but then yeah. i also see this other side of that where the people who just only have that are like oh there's something else that we need to be a bit more um outward and communal and 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 doing these works of love in public and it it can't just be about the inner yeah. um but then it also can't just be yeah. about this out, outer structure there has to be something so i think and i think a lot of my own life is like where do I or what do I need to focus on or how do I hold these intention? Yeah. And then as a pastor, how do I hold people in different places intention yeah. together who are saying yeah. this is most important? No, this is most important. Yeah. So I'm exactly. this is actually a really valuable conversation just to even have a someone who's also like to have a name and and right. and a place to land yeah. this. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting.
2: Yeah, so I would recommend reading *Fear and Trembling* with hmm. re, but reading it in that perspective. Yeah, not yeah. reading it simply as a story about the sacrifice of of Isaac, right? Um, but reading it, it, it precisely with that tension in mind that you're discussing, yeah. and then *Works of Love* too is is a good is a good place to start. Hmm. Um, I just want to qualify something I said. I he he did as I say in *Works of Love* he does emphasize the the communal aspects of christianity right so obviously that implies some kind of institutional structure even if it's mm. minimal or so, at least some kind of rules <laughs> some, some kind organization. of organization some kind yeah. of organization right mm. yeah but he never uh, so he accepted that you know on some level but he never explored he never did politics he never wrote about politics whether it's the politics yeah. of the church, or, or you know how to structure a church, or how to organize a church, or a society, or he didn't concern himself with any of that. Right. Um, so no prescription. Not, yeah. yeah. So he doesn't talk a lot about the value of institutions, just because it's not his main concern. But of course, he does on some level affirm um, organization on some level, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Even if it's implicit.
1: I don't know if we can pivot here. Where okay, so existentialism, um, (laughs) because you know, as you said earlier, he's considered by many as you know the father or one of the fathers of existentialism, and he has this unique background as a theist or as a Christian. Um, Existentialism, as it's moved into the 20th century and now into the 21st century, I guess, how how has that progression happened? because it was it was pretty dom- it was a dominant at least in the west it was a dominant view or a way of thinking mm-hmm. from from what i understand and then it's shifted i think in the last 50 years as well can can you talk mm-hmm. just a little bit about that
2: well i mean the the early 20th century uh, french existentialism which became you know the the why with philosophers like sartre and and uh, Camus and others, uh, that kind of existentialism uh, put a lot uh, more emphasis on the irrational aspects of life. Uh, the fact that life was meaningless mm. and that we could create our own meaning.
0: Right.
2: And so that's, as I, as I mentioned, that's a very different kind of existentialism from Kierkegaard's.
1: So Kierkegaard didn't say anything about us creating our own meaning and, and no. meaning even in the sense of our own expressions of love or expression of faith
2: yes yes exactly yes so
1: that would have been his that, yes. that would have been the the direction he took that, that would have been
2: as an expression of 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 his of faith mm. right and so all the tension all the existential tension comes from that from the the existential tension in Kierkegaard comes actually from the fact that it has to be expressed.
1: Hmm. And if it's not expressed, then right, then the there
2: would be no tension, right? right? Then there would be no existential tension. Right. Whereas the existential tension in in the French existentialists, it comes from the fact that you have to create your own meaning, your own. You have to create your own truths. Hmm. You have to create your own path in life
1: but they were responding to something as well. I mean they were coming out of the catholic uh, state right. churches as well. Right. Um so their their reaction maybe maybe was stronger <laughs> than Kierkegaard's. Right.
2: Um
1: they were rejecting I mean I I think of the silent revolution in Quebec where there was a strong reaction to the it wasn't exactly a state church but it might as well have mm-hmm. been. Okay can can we follow the french existentialists then and f- okay existentialism in the west has been defined as create your own meaning yeah um,
2: yeah oh, no, it
1: led more towards nihilism
2: uh, that would be my argument you know if uh, uh, but that you know okay. <laughs> uh, somebody who's who's more into sartre than i am for example would say that no there's um more there is a uh, commun- more communal aspect to his his philosophy Mm. Um, I would, I I would probably argue against that, but but I'm not an ex, by no means an expert on on Sartre, mm. uh, and some of those uh, some of the other French existentialists.
1: What have been the big changes then? Uh, let's say in the last hundred fifty years, shifts, I guess, in culture or society. We've seen the fall of Christendom. Mm-hmm. there There really isn 't any state church i mean they ex- right. they exist officially, but they don 't really hold any water um, yeah. um,
2: um
1: or influence i should say right no I, I, well as far as the person so i as a christian um there there's going to be Kierkegaard will have had an influence whether I know it or not in how my faith is expressed yeah. mm-hmm. um, if if i 'm a non christian um how would existentialism, and I'd like to stay with the non-Christian for a minute. Um, how would existentialism have affected the difference in how they would see the world or live their lives today? I mean, right. it's hard to, hard to yeah. speak in, in a vacuum, but yeah. uh, there, there's so many other influences. But how would existentialism in particular, and if it was the French existentialists that impacted yeah. just as far as personal... Yeah expression of life I guess
2: yeah I I would uh, of course they they can cont- they had a lot of influence over uh, a lot of these th- th- things trickle down into popular culture too mm-hmm. you know and and so they had a, a lot of influence uh, but existentialism was kind of use. became a little bit less popular you know after the mid-century mid 20th century mm. um kind
0: of like after and, the war Would, yeah,
2: yeah and and um in the in the academy in in, mm. in the universities mm-hmm. um and in part because you know you get the influence of marxism and and and, and then you get postmodernism and and uh, and structuralism and then post structuralism right. and and so you get these philosophies that put more emphasis on on institutional structures and mm-hmm. politics sure. and and so philosophy becomes a lot more political right whereas the existentialists were not, were focused much more on individual and personal meaning mm-hmm. sure. and so they kind of fall out of favor in at least in some academic circles.
1: Hmm. Interesting. You know, yeah. it's towards
2: the from the middle to the end of the 20th century.
1: So there was they couldn't hold that intention. They, they couldn't hold the tension.
2: Right. Of, exactly. Yeah. They yeah. couldn't yeah. hold uh, the
1: contradiction, and it swung back into
2: institution. Yeah. It, well, I would actually argue that the French were kind of one kind of one sided to begin with, but but that's my okay. personal bias. <laughs> You know it 's coming, so you out, get, it's coming you out get that p- pendulum swing between those the people who are more politi- the philosophers who are more political and the ones who are more individualistic mm. Mm. and so i th- I personally think Kierkegaard had a much better you know grasp of, of the fullness of the of mm. human the human condition but um, that 's just my bias um, so but yeah you you're right, you do see that kind of pendulum swing between those kinds of philosophies that are more political and then those that are more individualistic. Hmm.
1: Which is interesting because you have these movements today that are very critical of institution. And yet we live in a very individualistic society in North America. Um, and, And so it's, it's, it's remarkable that those organizations can, can get traction you know it's like you know I mean if you raise up your fist everyone's like yeah me too you know it's like it's not it's not a difficult cry I guess to to get support for um so was there what fell apart um I, I think basically I mean I see this as a disconnect between individuals and the institutions that they depend on or allow rule over them in a sense there's been a massive disconnect politically um organizationally um and i see existentialism as as sort of being a reason for that like we abandon tradition or we abandon um you know the church or abandon things for our own meaning and yet something is going to fill the void and take control and exert power and make money (laughs) So. Exactly.
2: <laughs> um, yeah. So, with so, the
0: market, is would that yeah. be the the new god? Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I, I personally believe. I mean, I, we could discuss this in, in in detail, but I, I personally be- think. I happen to think that this idea of creating your own meaning is actually uh, vacuous. It, it doesn't actually make sense if you actually think about it. Mm-hmm. And if that is the case, and that's of course many people would disagree with me, that you can't. That's that's another, <laughs> you're, you're entitled. You're entitled to have but, your but own if,
1: meaning. If that is
2: <laughs> if that is the case, yeah. Uh, then I do think that's very that the basic condition of a lot of people is a feeling of meaningless and emptiness. And so, yeah, that's going to be filled with, with superficial s- solutions. And, and so we, it, it, our meaning in life will be created for us
0: mm. through market
2: forces so, or, or whatever. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I see that it's funny just cuz we're trying to like get a grasp on what's happening in the world and how do we live and respond in it with this incarnational faith but I think what I'm seeing is a lot of the the backlash to okay, you've said we can be self-made people it's all up to us actually that's not true the systems are skewed some of us aren't benefiting like I see the a lot of the, the um protest movements this summer as that, right? Like this this isn't working for all of us, this lie of we're all individuals and we make our own meaning, it's not happening because the system only works for some of us. So I see that. And but then I see also the um that other side of saying, well, then we need to make it so that the system does work because we do live in an ecosystem of sorts, in a bigger connected thing so is there a way to do that so that individuals can thrive and that we live in a whole space like it's that weird tension I don't that's I mean I'm kind of trying to get a grasp on how to situate myself in all of it
2: yeah well I mean it it is yeah it's it is very difficult Hmm. yeah and and it's something that you actually have to live out and experience mm-hmm. and 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 you know learn through experience and it's it's yeah it's very difficult.
1: Mm. Yeah. Um there there's a film that came out about a year ago uh A Hidden Life, a Terrence Malick film. Right. About um a conscientious objector in mm-hmm. Austria. So he was, mm-hmm. uh, part of Hitler, Hitler's empire at that point. And he was a soldier and he, in order to, cause he was, uh, drafted, um, he had to sign allegiance or pledge allegiance to Hitler and he decides not to. And so it's just, it's that story. It's based on a true, true events. Um, and and I look at that like he he was a part of a state church, the Austrian church. Well, maybe not officially state, but he was a part of a big church, the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church had basically at that point was, was counseling him to no, just make the pledge, you know, this is for your country. Um, you know, you will there, there's no benefiting from not doing this. Mm-hmm. And so it's really a picture of an individual faith that is expressed um, and taken seriously amid everyone else in his village, in his country is just moving forward, whether they like it or not. They are not expressing their faith. Right. Personally. They're not taking it seriously.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, And yet he didn't stop the war. Um, I mean, all he All that happened, I won't give away the end of the movie or the end of the story, Mm -hmm. but uh, I mean, it's, it's a pretty, that he didn't affect change as we would define it today. I don't think, or like culturally or, you know, Mm -hmm. he didn't affect societal change. And yet 70 years later, they make a film about him. Mm -hmm. You know, um, his story is still poignant and, inspiring so like what what was Kierkegaard then what did he see the end of this being what kind of was it just personal fulfillment like I I found myself and here I am and myself is expressed in faith and yay I get to go to heaven now (laughs) like what what was his end
2: in general he hesitated to talk a lot about that Mm. Um I mean he will talk about salvation and, and 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 things of that sort but he never what what is on the other side of he never did eschatology okay there's no there's nothing he doesn't talk much about what's on the other side of of the of, the, of that, of that veil <laughs> okay. um, where, you know, but in, in part because he didn't see his purpose, that just wasn't his purpose. Mm. For example, he was never, he never considered himself, even though he, he wrote uh, tons of what really are sermons. He said, mm-hmm. these are not sermons because I don't have the authority to preach. Right. I was not given the authority. I'm just a, I'm just a, a humble philosopher who asks questions. Hmm. So he's very Socratic in that sense. Hmm. So he never gave us he didn't there, I'm sure there are exceptions but he doesn't really go into a lot of details about what what the end goal of of history is for example. Hmm.
1: He's
2: actually he was actually very skeptical of that. Hmm. In, in part because there were philosophers like like Hegel who gave us? Who gave a very, you know, definite, or at least tried to outline what the purpose of history was. Mm. And,
1: and and that led to Marx, Marxism, and right. communism. Even was influenced by mm, that, right? Very um, mm. focused on, you know, kind of curating history, and right? Curating a,
2: right? Huh. Which which is why people re- re- have read Kierkegaard as being very individualistic because he doesn't mm. want to talk about politics, you know, he doesn't want right. to focus it. But that's in part because of the same, you know, you talked about the example of of um, the movie that you watched. Yeah. You, you know, it, it's it's for some of the same reasons. You know, you're living in an you're living in an in a time. And place that doesn't, at least from for your from your perspective, fully uh, embody mm. what Christianity is all about. Mm. And if that's the case, you do feel alienated from society. You do feel like you're out of place and out of step. Mm. And and um, that's the that's the kind of alienation that that Hegel tried to solve he said that's actually christianity christians are always going to feel alienated and out of place and so hegel for hegel the solution is is politics hmm. uh, but but kierkegaard could never go there um, and so that's where you get the tension in his in his in his philosophy and his unwillingness to talk about talk about the meaning of history or where history is heading um and so and that includes eschatology he doesn't uh he does not have a positive he does not have any kind of specific vision Hmm. about what salvation is going to look like um how you know what what's going to happen to the um in in the age to come uh that's but so that's so it's very easy to read kierkegaard as individualistic and that's where those interpretations of kierkegaard has come Mm. have come from but then on the other hand you do have as you mentioned in relation to that movie just because that the the character in that movie is alienated from his his society doesn't mean that he doesn't embody his faith yeah Mm -hmm. and so just because kierkegaard doesn't uh, do a lot doesn't engage in a lot of politics doesn't mean that he didn't talk about what he political to live, yeah. a, yeah. to live out your faith mm. Embodied, mm. in an embodied way
1: right there's, there's there can still be an engagement but it's not yeah yeah it's not a prescribed well then you always do this against the state or for the right. state or it's
2: yeah 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 exactly
0: do you so this is more of a personal question do you find that what do you think is that a wise thing to not always be naming the end because really we don't exactly know <laughs> like or or is but then is there also like is it good to have a vision and to be leaning into that like what is that a tension is that one of those tension points that we can hold to what is your well, take on that
2: I mean I I think here, I did think we have a vision. Hmm. in part because of the incarnation which is revealed hmm. truth right hmm. um so because of revealed truth we do have a vision
0: and and uh, that would be defined by like the the life and the work of jesus yeah exactly yeah.
2: Hmm. um and then uh, there's he also did seem to, i i'm not sure if he um i'm not sure of his take on natural theology hmm. but he did you know may mean he might have believed uh, that we have you know kind of an eternal and consciousness of the eternal, although he did put a lot more emphasis on revealed faith
1: mm-hmm.
2: um so in any case we do have for for him we do have a vision of the eternal, but it's a partial it's a fragmented vision, it's not complete, it's through a glass darkly mm-hmm. and so in you know, in part because of our human nature, in part because of sin, and and it would be impertinent to claim otherwise for for Kierkegaard, it would be impertinent to claim that we have the absolute truth.
0: Mm. Yeah. <clears throat>
1: he's prudent (laughs) i like his prudence which you have to be i guess we all have that right yes (laughs)
2: but but that doesn't mean that we don't have as you as you said uh jackie a vision you know there is we do we do live we are also spiritual uh, creatures and so uh it's precisely because we do have a vision of eternal truths of of something beyond um something transcendent something beyond our own uh, beyond what we create for ourselves mm. it's precisely because of that that we that the, that we have this tension between uh the temporal and the eternal mm. there would be no existential tension for for kierkegaard if we if we didn't also have a kind of if we were not already attuned in some way to god
0: i have one last question why is attending to philosophy and philosophers important or what do, what benefit and value does it have
2: I think it's allowed me to it hasn't i don't think you can prove faith through reason hmm. but I think you can explore faith through reason hmm. so i don't oh i like that yeah uh, and and so i think in that sense it's helpful mm-hmm. on the other hand i you know, there are plenty of people who have been led away from faith through philosophy.
0: Hmm.
2: It hasn't. It, for me, it's deepened my faith, but that's just my personal experience.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, there was. Um, I can't remember who who gave me this, but beginning, and then um, you know, Christianity at the beginning, and then it became very Grecofied. <laughs> but through philosophy and then it became very political through empire. And then most recently it's become very economic and, and just in, in the lens through which Christianity has been Mm. viewed. And, and I think philosophy is maybe the least damaging to Christianity, (laughs) but it also has still colored how we, you know, and and you look at the, you know, kind of the Catholic thinkers or the early Mm. church thinkers who thought very philosophically and wrote about Christianity that way. And, um, you know, and, and maybe lost a bit of that essence of of Christianity. So I really like that you describe it as exploring rather than, you know, defending.
2: Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really good point. The, the early Christian theologians up until the, the late middle ages and even beyond, of course, uh, far beyond were very much influenced by the Greek thinkers. Mm-hmm. A lot of people would argue uh, to the detriment of Christianity, but I I think it was actually beneficial and could actually work in some cases. Mm-hmm. I worked for St. Augustine, I think mm-hmm. St. Augustine is is. his, his thinking was profoundly influenced by by the greeks mm-hmm. and and i think beneficially so in in many cases mm-hmm. um, and i actually think it's uh, that when you get to the late middle ages and beyond greek thinking and christianity and christian theology becomes less important it doesn't mean it's important there's, there's still a lot of influence of greek thinking on christian theology after the late middle ages mm. but in the late middle ages and beyond it becomes less influential mm. and theologians start to put more emphasis on uh on god's power and his and his will mm. over mm. reason mm. and and that from and and I can understand why you would want to put emphasis on God's freedom, his will, his, his, his power, his authority over reason. Mm. Right. I can, mm-hmm. I understand where that comes from, but I also think it's very dangerous.
1: Mm. Mm. Oh, you, you just opened the can of worms. I'm so <laughs> sorry. <laughs> there, there was, I had, I had two questions and I've asked oh, one the, the, the other question and, because we, I, I got taken in by all of this. The other question just has to do with determinism and mm. free will. So, uh, which I guess the same thing um, is, was Kierkegaard a advocate or did he believe in free will or are we um, like, what, what did he have to say about that?
2: Yeah, he did believe in, in he, he puts a lot of emphasis on choice that we have to yeah. choose Christianity. We have to choose our christianity we can't just you know blindly um follow the we can't follow the crowd we can't there's there's lots of and he talks about the crowd and following the herd and all of that stuff and and making your own choices in life so he puts Hmm. a lot of emphasis on choice
1: it i find it very interesting that today like there's actually quite a bit there's quite a strong movement um to say that actually we don't have any choice like we are basically locked into and and yet it's very individualistic (laughs) like i I just i have such a hard time you know all and and i guess leads to this idea that well everything's meaningless since i didn't have a say or i don't have an honest choice
2: yeah
1: um yeah to me that's that's one of the most fascinating things in that if we don't have free choice then there's no meaning there's no purpose there's nothing Right. Um, and yet Kierkegaard is very,
2: yeah. I mean, that's the, there's so many paradoxes of, about, you know, the, the, you know, our human condition and the way we even, you know, every age mm-hmm. has, its, has its own paradoxes The you know, yeah. the, the tensions that we're grappling with. Um, and, and yeah, you certainly point to, to some, to the ones that we're grappling with at the moment. As socrates in in some of plato's dialogues defines philosophy as as knowing your own ignorance hmm. so he that's says, how he defines
1: philosophy yeah
2: Wow. so the the why those the people who are truly wise know that they that they're ignorant yeah whereas the ones who who are not wise think they know everything so the very definition of philosophy is to realize your own ignorance. Hmm. And well,
1: and, the and pursuit to the, of wisdom. Yeah, the, to the, the the ask literal, good questions. Like, the like, philo yes. is the love of
2: wisdom. The love, right? So he's he puts a lot. He says in in the sympo, uh, Socrates talks about that in suppose in the Symposium. The lo- love of wisdom, rather than being the. Because you are a lover of wisdom, it means that you are not wise. It's, precise, it's precisely oh, yeah. the lovers of wisdom who are not wise because they are in love with, with wisdom. Hmm. Oh,
1: yeah. And, I and love if, that. If, if you look at Jesus as um, the wisdom of God, mm-hmm. um, that, that, I mean, is a, is a very yeah. beautiful expression of yes. Christianity. Right. We, mm-hmm. we love Christ. Yes. That is philosophy, the truest yeah. philosophy, and probably for <laughs> Kierkegaard too, right. would be the love of Christ.
2: yeah mm. uh, right, right. I
0: love I love that. I, my ads, so in my it's very good. very early days of pastoring, I got a call from someone saying, "You know it's not that I think that you shouldn't be a pastor because you're a woman. That's not it. I think the a pastor should be the person who knows the most in the room." And I was like, okay, thanks. Um, and and then very shortly after, I heard another pastor say, "You know what? A good pastor knows how much they don't know." And I was just like, "Like, yes, that makes a heck of a lot more yes sense." I like a good, like, a, yeah, a lover of wisdom. This is great.
2: But that, that's, that's the tension there as a being a pastor mm-hmm. and where you're you're supposed to have all the answers, right?
0: I have no answers. I know this should not be shocking to anyone who knows me. I know nothing. (laughs) I just like to ask questions. How do you preach?
2: How do you preach a sermon without? Yeah. I well,
0: I tell them what my impressions are. (laughs) I ask a lot of questions. Not everybody loves it.
2: (laughs) So you 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 deliver Socratic sermons?
0: Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Very interesting. I, I point I point to the beauty of Christ. Our recording today has been done online from our homes. Music graciously provided by Jennifer Oikawa. Check out Escape Plan to Canada by the Jen Oikawa Trio.
1: One thing we'd like to develop more of is a conversation with our listeners. Uh, if you'd like to join the conversation, find us on Instagram at the flesh, no spaces, or on Facebook. Like our page and follow us get all our updates.